Welcome to the Today Dreamer podcast. I really appreciate your presence in this moment of being with all of us here together. It feels really nice and you're very welcome in this space. Today Dreamer is a podcast or space that's been created for you to explore what the cultivation of presence looks like within your own life and what it feels like to contribute that presence towards the blossoming of the emergent world story. How can we more deeply participate in that blossoming? How can we more fully collaborate and contribute towards it? Is a question that we continually explore through conversational space on the show. Today's episode is on psychedelics and Buddhism. And we explore the intersection between the two very prominent topics that come up regularly on the show. If you're someone that's never had a psychedelic experience before and you're feeling a little bit curious around the idea, then this is the perfect episode for you. If you're uh, interested in Buddhism and in psychedelics, this is also a good one for you. So I'll give you a little bit of an intro and then we'll move into uh, the show. So For millennia, psychedelics have been used by indigenous and other cultures for spiritual and healing purposes. They were studied by researchers within psychiatry from the late 19th century until the mid-20th century when psychedelics became highly regulated, stigmatized, and became for the most part illegal to use or study in any context. Today, after over two decades of clinical research and advocacy for drug policy reform, including for legal permission to study psychedelics, the market in psychedelic drugs is predicted to be more than double from the $3 billion industry it is today to a $7 billion industry by 2027. A growing body of evidence from clinical research trials is showing that evidence-based psychedelic-assisted therapies have the potential to improve the lives of millions of people who live with the impacts of complex trauma and other clinical conditions, including depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, and substance use disorders. So today's guest is Blake Rupert. And Blake and I had a great chat around the intersection of psychedelics and Buddhism, among other things. Um, But Blake's just an amazing human who I'm gonna tell you a little bit about now before we go a little bit deeper together. Uh, So Blake is a Buddhist therapist and advocate for psychedelic medicine and he is also a mentor and author. He's a book nerd and an avid outdoorsman. He grew up in North Vancouver with mountains and a great rainforest right in his backyard. He loves hiking and ultralight backpacking and with 26 years of active exploration, he's been led into a career as a nature-based outdoor educator and um, he has bachelors in psychology and philosophy from Dalhousie and um, yeah he ended up studying computational science specifically the intersection of consciousness with AI and the impending rise of thinking machines so he's also a beautiful Uh, person being human and you'll get this sense of this just by you know the instant he he begins to kind of share his vibe with you with us he takes amazing 
photographs and creates these beautiful art pieces which we also explore and he's also worked for Maps Canada as well which is where I kind of got that little spiel on psychedelic medicine from. He has a podcast called Rupert Radio which you should definitely check out after this one and the show explores technologies and teachings to develop our awareness and increase our degrees of freedom. So I think it's quite clear why I wanted to get Blake on for a chat and I think this is going to be a very special one. So without further ado, here's the conversation with Blake. If you do get something out of it, I do uh, humbly request that you pass it on to someone else that might also uh, gain some benefit from being a part of this communal conversation. Uh, but yeah, here's a chat with Blake. Hope you enjoy and yeah, thanks again for being here with us. So where do we begin? <laughs> is something I've been wondering about in preparation for our chat, Blake. Um, there's, there's so many kind of interesting uh, facets to the surface of, of, of who you are and, and what you do. And this is only from a distance that I've noticed all these kind of little interesting sparkling gems that I'm curious <laughs> and they've filled me with wonder and excitement. So I guess the first thing that comes to my mind and my heart would be the kind of stumbling across your Instagram and these photos, which, which are really beautiful, but they also, the captions to the photos and, and the kind of marriage of those two elements really brought about a, a sense of meaning and made me really curious, um, especially because recently I've been, um, kind of exploring the idea of what what nakedness or nudity or being totally free of yeah or looking at I guess clothing as an analogy uh, what what does it mean to be naked I had a recent experience where I was standing in a river and I felt almost ashamed or nervous to take mm -hmm. my clothes off and mm -hmm. was worried about what may happen if someone came around the corner or, you know, how I might be seen. And, um, yeah, I, there's something about your photography style and the meaning kind of behind your words and that kind of experience that I've been thinking about and exploring that kind of felt like maybe a nice place to begin, even mm -hmm. though it may not, have anything to do with what I thought our chat would be about. Yeah. Um, how does that sit with you? And does, yeah, is there anything you'd like to share about um, that journey and um, that space? Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, first off, oh. thanks for hosting this conversation and inviting me to speak. And thank you so much for your kind words and your um, heartfelt sincerity and acknowledging the art that I try and make and the messages I try to convey. I really appreciate, um, yeah, all that you've said. Um, I can say for the nude photography that, man, it's so many things are bound up in this process of not only creating the art of nakedness, but also being a nudist. It's something I identify as 
in the sense that I really have tried to push myself to those uncomfortable places and to develop a practice where I can show up simply as I am in my skin without um, layers of resistance, layers of tension or feeling like, oh, this is inappropriate or I don't belong here or people are judging me. And that's been a journey that I've been on for uh, at least the past 10 years. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with one of my good friends where we had both been, I think, nudists at that point for multiple years. And it was the spring and we went to go skinny dipping and we went to dive into a river. And just before we took off our boxers, fully getting naked, we both had this moment of like, this is, this is so wrong. This is so inappropriate. And I had this sort of meta awareness for a second to be like, wow, I've been doing this for six years, spending time bathing or running on a beach or whatever it is, these simple, really wholesome and natural things. And here I am in this moment with no one around except for one of my best friends. And I feel this resistance. I feel this fear. Wow. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) And so I tried to employ, and I I think he did at the same time, this sort of mindfulness of, ah, this edge that I thought I had conquered is reappearing. Wow. I thought I was past it, but wow. I'm now have the opportunity to learn this lesson again, or engage with this, um, this question of whether or not it's okay to be myself as I am authentically and without, um, need of any mask or filter between us. And I think that question is something that I had mentors and friends and role models when I was in my late teens, really subtly, they posed those questions to me. And I saw a richness there that I chose to lean into and to explore. And for yeah, many years, it's been a fertile place to um, poke around and root through and see what I come up with. It's interesting how we can, you know, we have this, this thought that, you know, we've gotten past something or that we've, you know, learned a lesson in a certain way and that it may not reoccur. And then the surprise feeling of it happening again, that's exactly what happened to me in, in my kind of shared experience as well. I, I, I was kind of, like, oh, well, I thought I had moved past this idea of worrying about what other people think. And then I'd realized that there's probably many layers to that exploration and that I'm probably unaware of most of them. Mm. And it was just, yeah, it was a bit of a, a shocking moment of revelation that, you know, um, there is there, there might not ever be some kind of an endpoint to a lot of the lessons that we go through. And that's okay. And relearning them the next time around with the previous experience of the first, it seems Mm. like a, like a familiar friend rather than as much of a, yeah. um, There wasn't as much tension, I guess, the second time around, or, you know, I'm saying second, but who knows how many cycles it's been. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Fair enough. Yeah. So um, with the, so you've been doing this for a, a while and what does it, what does it mean to be a nudist? I, I'm kind of like, I've never really 
I don't think I've ever met a nudist before. And I've <laughs> never really thought about this idea of being naked. And I mean, there was a point in, in this experience, because I was away for a few days with a group of friends where we all just ended up taking our clothes off and getting in the water. And it just felt really felt quite liberating. And it felt like, yeah, it was, it was, um, it, it, it showed a lot. It showed me quite a bit and it, it allowed me to think about things from a different perspective and just the idea of clothing itself uh, as it's felt, the clothing felt strange for the first time. And that was an interesting um, thought and feeling, I guess. And it felt nice to feel wild, you know, I'm like, all. yeah, like I felt even more connected with uh, the natural world and the sounds mm -hmm. and the textures and everything from like the glimmering of the sunshine through the river to the, like the leaves blowing mm -hmm. past and, and the breeze in my skin, everything just felt more alive and more wild. So yeah, I guess my question is, yeah, like what does it mean to be nudist uh, to you or to be naked to you? And, and have you had similar thoughts or have you had different ones that you might be open to sharing? Mm -hmm. I think maybe a good way of leading into this is through a story and it's of a, mm, I think I was 19 at the time and I had gone to my first music festival, uh, Sasquatch um, in Washington in the U S and there I had on one of these wonderful adventurous nights met this girl who completely enamored me just she was mysterious and she was playful and she was funny and she was beautiful and super intelligent and through some twist of fate we stayed in touch and after the festival the first time we talked she asked me if i wanted to go to this place called wreck beach which is a beach in vancouver that's quite famous um it's a big expansive beach it's probably the nicest one in vancouver and it's right next to UBC, which is the major university. So all those factors together uh, have led to it being the nudist beach of Vancouver. And it has this long legacy in history. Um, but I had never been there because I lived pretty far away, like an hour and a half. And I just had never had cause to go to a nudist beach. It was this weird, foreign, strange idea. And this girl, I remember this girl asking me and I'm like, wow, she's asking me to go to a nudist beach. Oh, I'm going to score. Like she's going naked. Woo! And also just like, I would go anywhere she proposes. If she wants to go to the dump, I'm, I'm going to go there. <laughs> and so I showed up there and met with her and a couple of her friends. And within the first 10 minutes, she took off her shirt and then unclasped her bra and was suddenly top, topless. And I thought to myself, wow, there could be no other reason that she was doing this rather than trying to signal that she was sexually interested in me. And I remember being, having this, I don't know how to describe, but like small excitement. It felt like, oh yeah, like this is so good. And even as that was happening, I was like, this is a weird sensation. Like, I'm reading a lot into this. this is making this all about me. And she asked me, would you feel comfortable? Like, are, are you going to take your clothes off? And I tried to play it cool. Like I'd been to Wreck Beach a million times. 
I was like, yeah, yeah for sure. And I went down to my boxers, <laughs> which in hindsight probably should have just gone uh, all the way in. But that, that's where I got to that day. And at some point, as we spent a couple hours on the beach playing Frisbee and just hanging out and getting to know each other, she commented on how beautiful the sensation was to have the sun on her skin, on her chest and on her back. I don't think she even remarked on any sense of injustice that it was something that was frequently held away from her, given that she's a woman and she has to wear a bikini top or something. There, there was no resentment or anything, but there was definitely a sense of like, this is rare. It's not often I get to feel this. And it struck me like a lightning bolt that I had thought her removing her clothing could only signal sexual stuff. Meanwhile, I, I didn't even consider that maybe she just likes the feeling of the sun kissing her skin. Something that I take for granted all the time. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. And meanwhile, that whole process of getting down my boxers, which was terrifying. Um, I mean, I remember being a kid and <laughs> trying to being in situations where my dad tried to like in like change rooms at pools or something, being like, okay, like you can change behind the towel and being like, what? No, that's like terrifying. What if someone sees? And so those two things, the recognition that there was just the potential for freedom and pleasure in engaging, like you just said, with the natural world, without clothing on, just feeling the wind and the sun. And then also the realization that I very strongly had the, this notion that nudity equals sexuality. Nudity equals, um, yeah, that the sexual exchange or romantic exchange. And so coming out of that experience, I really started to have conversations with people I trusted, a lot of whom were a bit older than me and who had been to Rec Beach and places like that, and started to ask, like, what do you think about these things? And they're like, oh, dude, go be naked in a forest. You haven't done that? Like, oh, I was like, oh, okay, okay. And lo and behold, I realized that I really enjoyed it. Similar, I think, to what I heard from you. And concurrently, or like in parallel with all that, I was starting to learn photography. And so at some point I wanted to start taking portraits and one of the people that I really admired and trusted was like, Oh, well, why don't you do naked portraits of me? I was like, yeah, let's do it in a forest. That sounds great. And I think each of those sort of built off each other or gave the opportunity to be ampliative to each of them in turn and to explore like, what does it feel like? What is the craft? Like, yeah, it just, moved into this beautiful tapestry yeah i'm hearing a lot of different kind of uh, beautiful ingredients so you've got creativity you know um this this exploration of a, of a kind of a space that you haven't um looked into before or um danced around and there's other people involved relationships um there's nature uh, and and also it seems like even like an evolution of your relationship with your sexuality. And yeah. I guess I'm looking for some way to blend this into Buddhism and psychedelics. <laughs> and 
something that's come up is um, a wondering, and I, I, this is quite a personal question. So feel free to um, divert things in a different direction if you like. But okay. I'm just wondering, you know, um, how um, maybe Buddhism has maybe shaped that space as well as mm. these experiences um, through your creative endeavors and being around other people that are naked and, and um, noticing those, uh, I, I guess, sexual elements within yourself. I don't know a, mm -hmm. a better way of putting it. Um, yeah. Yeah. How that's kind of shaped how you, um, you know, maybe approach relational space um, and how that may have, uh, changed because that seems like it was definitely quite a while ago um based on what you shared mm -hmm. yeah it's something that's interesting is the way that there can be so much dynamic give and take amongst factors and these things are all independent streams mm. but they are you familiar with the concept of bootstrapping um i don't think so so simply put, uh, you may have something that's too heavy to lift up. Say you're on a deck and you need to lift up, um, I don't know, a bathtub, like a cast iron bathtub or something. Mm -hmm. It may be too heavy to carry, but what you can do is get a rope under it and tie one rope. So, so the bathtub's like this, and then you have a rope that goes under it and you can tie one end of the rope off. And then on the other end, you pull that rope up as much as you can go before it gets too heavy but now it's gone up an inch. And so now you can tie that end of the rope off, go to the other side, untie that one. And because now it's slack because mm. the other side's pulled up. Now this one can go more. So in that way you pull up like boot, each side of the boot, each string of the boot, you can pull it up a little bit and then alternate. And so the combination of time spent in nature um, in contemplation, introspection, uh, adventure, exercising, uh, like communing with plants and animals and trees and the earth that built off of, I think that was the first thing for me. That was like, that was so much of my childhood was just running around in a forest. Um, and then when I started to explore Buddhism and mindfulness, I was literally just trying to, I think that happened next. And that was just the invitation to notice what are intense signals occurring in my being or that I have access to. And then what is it like to try and attend to those without falling prey to losing my focus or to capitulate into giving in and just being taken over or to fighting or fleeing from it. And one of the things I found in that practice, so commonly referred to as meditation, is that when there is a sharp signal, such as pain or excitement or pleasure, these are excellent times to practice mindfulness, to practice meditation. By definition, the signal is louder. It can be really boring or irritating or awkward, I find when I'm trying to meditate and things are more or less in homeostasis. Cause I'm like, Oh, I'm so familiar with all this stuff. It's all boring. 
But when I'm trying to take off my clothes in a public space, and I'm not saying like any public space, but like a naked, a nude beach, there's, it's not a thing I do often. And so there's this immediate novelty and also all the stress hormones of everything of like, this is taboo. You can't do this. And in that moment, there's this really bright signal that I can, if I choose to, and if I identify the opportunity, it's so easy at that point to be like, oh, wow. Okay. Whoa. Look at that signal. Where is that in my body? What does that feel like? And so I came to identify the practice of exploring nudity and consciously excavating my sense of sexuality with, uh, as I said before, a fertile uh, area of introspection or of awareness. And I'm really grateful for mindfulness and meditation as it encourages me or rewards me for paying attention. And I feel like I can do that in almost any situation. So when I find ones that are like really uh, connect well, or that I find a lot of fertile like stuff in that area, it's just like, oh, this is such a treat. I'm learning what it's like to be me. Oh, I didn't know I was insecure about people looking at me from behind. Oh, I didn't know that I was like, worry oh all these things wow otherwise i'd just be like mindless but here i am fully like alive in this moment yeah it, it's a beautiful thing looking at that as a as an opportunity for practice rather than an issue of some sort it's like reframing it in a way and a mm -hmm. question comes up for me and this is maybe blending the conversation into more of a psychedelic space of um, curiosity around what you, what you feel into when I mentioned the overwhelm in that space. And maybe when there are too many of those signals coming up for you to be able to process or handle, um, maybe too many is not the right phrase, but quite, quite a lot more than what we experienced. Oh, there's, there's an intense feeling of excitement here or mm -hmm. fear or um, something that I haven't experienced in this way before I'm going to, uh, pay more mindful attention to what's going on, breathe into it and um, look at the subtlety or feel into the subtleties of this experience. And maybe I could learn something from what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, but I, either with um, maybe uh, an unfamiliarity with this terror, with a certain type of terrain, mm -hmm. um, I, there's a feelings of over overwhelm that can come up in those moments as well. And that's just something that I'm kind of, um, filling into as a question point and mm -hmm. um, maybe, yeah, just the wondering around if you've ever felt like that in, uh, you know, I mean, even the overwhelm itself is another signifier, I feel. But mm -hmm. I'm just kind of, yeah, curious about what comes up for you when I mention that. Sure. I just want to clarify and see if I, if it's okay with you to paraphrase your question to see if I'm understanding correctly. Sure. What I hear, what I'm hearing is that you're asking if in spaces of psychedelics, like yeah. having used psychedelics, yeah. there can be this sense of, oh, this is too much. I'm actually in danger. I'm being assaulted by the level of intensity here. Yeah, I, I feel like it, it, the, the question kind of would apply to psychedelic space, but also other spaces within life that it may feel like the difficulty level is ramped mm -hmm. up. Uh, mm -hmm. in an unfamiliar way and even maybe people may feel this in kind of the beginnings of a meditative kind of journey as well 
yeah, all the time. <laughs> oh man, it, it always, I always think it's funny when people encounter that, which most commonly they do, and then they're surprised. I'm not, it's not funny that they're surprised, but it's funny how many people are like, oh, this must be weird that I feel this way. It's like, no, that's pretty common. <laughs> um, okay, so I guess there's different dimensions that I can respond to, and I'll, I'll put it to you as to which you're most interested to, in. There's the pragmatic, which is a protocol that I've developed for myself or that I operate by, which is to assess threat levels and to um, decide next behaviors um, in order to like respond to what's going on and to make sure that things are actually going to move forward in a safe way. So that's one thing, like that's a very pragmatic, like action-based um, protocol. Uh, the second is this concept of, I think of it as centeredness and it's teachings that I've uh, learned and practiced through a sense of groundedness and being centered. Um, maybe I'll just, I, can, I think I can tie the other ones into the, that one. So are you interested in both of those or in one of those? Uh, both sound nice, yeah. Okay, so from on the protocol level, on the pragmatic, well, before I go there, first I should say to your question of have I felt that? Well, yeah, hold all the time, man. Like definitely the sense of like things are starting to flash in my peripheries. There's this idea that there's like sirens or like lights all around. It's like, okay, okay, things are getting real. Like stretch thin. I don't know if I can get out of this. Like danger, danger. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a real thing. What I've heard from you though is like a bridge between that state to almost like an excitement for the opportunity to practice in it mm, yeah and that's that's been very consciously cultivated over many years uh to the point where now that that's um not always but that's all, like more times than not the state that i get to and i revel in the intensity it's really in pleasurable um which is something i've heard other practicing buddhists talk about um <laughs> and i was like oh that sounds amazing if you could get to a place where you're not panicking but actually feels good and um, yeah, I'm really grateful for younger me who chose to start learning and practicing this, these things because uh, I feel much more resourced and steady mm -hmm. uh, as a result. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so from a very practical level, I have this concept or this like um, situation in my mind where uh, this scenario where I'm on a battlefield and the details of are, don't matter what matters is that there's things out there that could hurt me and I'm exposed. And so the very first thing in the protocol is um, establish if there's a real threat. So that I have this like movement, this embodied sense of step one is look, like identify where is the threat. And so if I look up and it's like, okay, there's somebody with a gun um, aiming at me. And I just want to pause to say that for people in the world, this is going on right now. And as much as we are able to talk about this and explore it in an uh, intellectual or philosophical way, I also hold in my heart the heaviness that there are real, real points of contention and violence going on right now. So hmm, I hope they are well and safe. So with the threat of violence, as if that's can be identified as being real, the second step is not 
what to do about it or how do I respond? Because often in my experience that can be to take too long to analyze. It's too big of a search space. And so I'm not going to try and do anything clever in the second step. What I'm going to do is find cover or uh, evasive maneuver. So if I'm standing out in a field and someone's pointing a gun at me, it's like, okay, how do I get behind a wall? Right. And then once I get, once I get to a place where the, there is distance or shelter between me and the threat, then the third step is, okay, reassess how real is this danger? How imminent it is? What, what are my options? And then from that, the, from step three, it breaks into a bunch of sub different subroutines based on, um, what is actually going on. Um, but often what I find is that the, the step to physically look, most people don't do that. Or at least I'll say for myself personally, that for a long time, I skipped that. And I went straight to, okay, how do I freestyle a creative solution to get safe or my needs met? And then I would get all caught up in this, uh, oh, I could do this, but what if this happened? Oh, but what? And then I'm trying to anticipate and make these clever plans. Whereas I wasn't even sure, like, wait, was that actually someone with a gun or was that just a stump in, a sh in the shade? And I couldn't actually tell. So for myself, I really try to establish, okay, what do I think is out there that's a potential danger? And is it actually there? And so that protocol I, I like run through every time there's like a major, like a trauma or whatever, all these things. So that is to say that this protocol represents that there are things that are dangerous in the world. And there are some things that ought to be avoided or defended or acted against. And I want to acknowledge that we can't meditate and float <laughs> above conflict. I think that's important to recognize. The second concept is this idea I have of um, centeredness. And it's, I feel it all the time. I was feeling it earlier today. It's can be extended to social interactions, to personal decision-making, to relationships, um, to business dealings. So many things where essentially we can find ourselves like in homeostasis or in a centered position. And then I'll give you the instance I was thinking of today. I reached out to a friend a week ago and said, Hey, I have a pretty urgent thing to talk to you about. Could we find some time to talk about this? And they're like, yeah, by all means um, we can do it tomorrow. And then the next day came and they, an hour before our scheduled meeting were like, Oh, actually I have to postpone. I can't do it. Um, can we reschedule another time? And I was like, Oh damn. Okay. Cause this is pretty urgent. Um, but yeah, I guess we can reschedule. And so in that moment, I felt myself shift a little bit out of center. Cause I was like, Oh, okay. I have to be flexible. I have to, the world's asking something of me and I'm not going to get the thing that I'm hoping for or that feels, uh, right or helpful. So I need to adjust and move to, um, make or to react to the changing environment. Mm. And unfortunately, this friend at that point uh, stopped responding. And so for a week, they left me on red and not ghosted me, but 
even though there was this, and I, I was very clear about what the urgency was. And I described in detail, like, um, not, not length, but I said quite clearly, like, Hey, this is what's going on. Um, this is why it's important. And for reasons unknown, and I don't know what they are, that person deigned to take time away and to not, um, offer a time to speak. And during that time, I kept, it kept nagging at me. Cause I'm like, shit, this needs to, this needs to be dealt with. And I'm like, Oh, what an, what a jerk. They're not like prioritizing this, even though they said they would. And then I have all these narratives, all these relationships to the events, all these biases, all these hopes, all these desires that I hold. And each time I noticed it, I noticed that it felt like there was these, I don't know, like monkeys on my back or something that were like pulling me further and further away. And that might be a little bit abstract, but I think more concretely, what I noticed was that anytime I had cause to be reminded of this, I felt a very sudden constriction, often in my stomach and my heart. And I felt like hunched over and like leaning away, or like, like these different movements that like were not sitting upright and like centered and like with a easeful strength. There was a physical like, like, like being pulled off axis. And for, I think the first time I really consciously observed this phenomenon, I was doing yoga. And I realized that when I tried to extend myself to make a yoga pose, I could do it and I'd be straining and I, oh yeah, I'm doing it. Can everyone see? I'm doing it. And then I'd come back and I'd be like, oh, that fucking hurt. Why was I doing that? And it was an entirely different thing when I started doing this practice called Ashtanga. And I had a teacher, a beautiful teacher who came to me and like one day said, what are you doing? Don't do that. (laughs) Just focus on doing the smallest version of the thing that you want to do while breathing. And if you can't do it while breathing in a centered place, then you probably aren't doing it right. And so I realized that when I went out of center and I was stretching and trying to accommodate and trying to be flexible and not checking in with my own, like, how does this feel? Is this nourishing? Is this sustainable? That it was going to hurt. I was going to get injured. And also I wasn't going to have the power if I wanted to like actually do something in that pose. I was strained just to get there. And so tying it back to this concept of Thanks for your patience. This is, that was quite a long uh, explanation. But tying it back to this all too familiar sense of overwhelm and of, ah, shit, this is really scary and I don't know what to do. I try to identify, is there a real threat? Okay, there is a threat, but say it's like I've done a bunch of mushrooms. I've done six grams of mushrooms and I feel like I'm going to die and the reality is ending. Okay, well, that may be true, but that's not as true as somebody holding a gun pointed at me. So I actually don't know yet if I need to run to cover. Okay, so what do I need to do? Ah, so fork in the road. Don't, don't need to do the cover thing. So instead, how am I in center? Physically, like actually in my body, oh no, I'm like really tensed up and I'm not breathing. <laughs> okay. Well, what if I realign my physical machinery? Oh, I'm still uncomfortable. 
I don't feel like I'm imminently going to cease existing or cease like experiencing. <sighs> okay, back to center. At that point, it just becomes noticing all the different ways that I'm leaning out or pulling away and being like, oh, I see that. Gently trying to corral them into a place of connection and um, strong relaxation, relaxed strength. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a really nice uh, way of kind of putting it. And, and it's interesting to look into the way you think about things as well. I think it's really uh, unique and um, really helpful as well. So mm. I appreciate your sharing on that. I've, um, I've got this curiosity coming up now around um, how just kind of deepening this kind of area uh, a little bit further. And again, we're going to be playing with between this space of psychedelics and Buddhism through a lot of the questions, but I, I was wondering, and I don't usually go back to what I've written, but this one is really something kind of, you know, I, I'm, I'm really, really curious about this, especially with um, the way that you just shared uh, your protocol. And if you have any other protocols, please feel free to let them fly um, at any yeah. point that feels right. Um, but I, I'm wondering about how your process of gauging with Buddhism and things like um, Gil Fronsdahl's Audio Dharma podcast, and I'm sure other kind of um, areas of fascination and exploration in your journey have informed mm -hmm. specifically the, the preparatory practices and um, the integrative stages after your psychedelic experience have you, is there any way that, um, yeah, is there anything you'd like to share on that specifically? So um, leading in and then also after um, the experience and if there's anything that kind of blends in with, um, you know, your learnings and, and or teachings around Buddhism. Mm. Mm, first off, shout out to Gil Fransdell. He is a phenomenal teacher and I'm massively indebted to his generosity and his wisdom and his care. Uh, for any who are interested, he has, yeah, the free audio Dharma podcast that is um, part of his Dharma studio or his temples um, offering. So there's a bunch of teachers on there and they've been doing it for years and it's totally free. They don't advertise or anything and it's phenomenal so good so it, it's really really good i i came across i i kind of had a look into his work after hearing you mention him and uh there's a specific one around uh, this contemplation and discussion point that i've been having recently around kind of um tending to others and tending to yourself mm. and it was just it was amazing it kind of cleared up a lot that i was really confused about in in just a short <laughs> video so it's yeah, yeah you can t definitely tell there's like a depth to his uh, wisdom that's it, it just feels um yeah it feels like a blessing to have come across it so thank you for yeah. thank you for opening that door for me and for all of yeah. us i'm so stoked because yeah the more i know how hard it was for me to find um teachers who seem to get it so uh, i'm grateful to help reflect that light and light more candles um i just just tying into what you just said about the idea of helping yourself so you can help others and that balance there. I realized for myself that when I was out of center and when I was so with a friend who was trying to help me, if I was like trying to be flexible and meet them in like bridge pose or whatever, and then they're like, Oh, I can't do this. And they pulled away. 
well, I was just going to fall flat on my face, which didn't help either of us, as opposed to taking responsibility, radical responsibility for like, I'm going to do the poses that I can with as much strength and grace and generosity as I am able to. And hopefully together, we can both do that and make these beautiful movements as humans and spirits. Um, yeah, so that that for me is also a practice and a question that I continue to try and learn, especially as somebody who works with mental health and healing. It's, it can be really taxing to, um, yeah, there's just a lot of demands. Um, so your question was about um, integration and uh, preparatory preparation practice. Preparation and integration. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and any protocols or any links with Buddhism that have kind of informed that process for you or, or that ongoing kind of development of what that looks like in your journey. Mm -hmm. I think I still have so much to learn about this, which is humbling. It's funny to, to see the ways in which I have learned i'm like early on in my teens i started to look on websites like airwood vault and i mean there wasn't that much <laughs> kids these days have it so easy there's so little resources about how to do psychedelics well um but i really tried to do research and try and learn best practices and i learned about set and setting and about um yeah if you can be in natural places how that can often help and that's something i've really taken to heart um i'm also really fortunate in the last uh, five or six years to be exposed to underground practitioners here in British Columbia, Canada, uh, who have thriving cultural, his, often historically informed practices. And they've done tremendous jobs of mentoring me and guiding me through ceremonies and showing me um, how there is knowledge, like bodies of knowledge, schools of thought, and intact cultures that have refine the science of psychedelic transformation. And that was eye-opening. It was very different than the um, Earwood Vault's simple suggestions of like, make sure there's no cops around and that you have, <laughs> like, yeah. So some of the things that come out, it's funny though, and something that comes up often is, and amazes me about this world and reality and consciousness is that their psychedelic practices, and there I mean the multitude of different traditions that I've been exposed to, overlap in really dramatic ways with things like Buddhism, even though as far as I know, there, there's not a ton of Buddhist psychedelics, which I'm trying to change. Um, there's not a ton of what, sorry? Like psychedelic Buddhism. Okay. It's not, I'm not aware of many Buddhist um, cultures who have overt or explicit uses of psychedelics. There's a couple instances, but, and famously in the seventies in the States, there was a ton of that. Those two really merged with people like Timothy Leary or Ram Dass or many more. But um, one of the things across consciousness, across um, studies of mind are these traditions that pop up. And for instance, just like, Feel your feels. <laughs> Be pay attention to sensations as they arise and don't try and resist them. On the face of it, it's so simple, but if anyone has ever made a concerted effort to practice this, if you've ever tried to sit still for an hour and allow what comes up to flow through you, 
<laughs> it turns out there's some skill or craft or art to it. And for me, I've been amazed to find how directly, like one for one, the teachings of Buddhism apply or appeal or like are appealing during psychedelic journeys. So for me, it's indistinguishable. Um, I'm, I think I would say I'm a Buddhist first and a psychedelic like practitioner or like psychonaut um, or lover of those medicinal spaces. Um, and it's all informed by Buddhism. So like whenever I'm thinking about integration or preparation, I'm literally just thinking of like the main teachings of Buddhism. And so I'm, I might just highlight one because I think if a listener or for yourself was to take away anything, this was such a fine distinction. This was such a specific delineation that I did not notice for so long until Gil pointed it out. But it's the difference between bare attention and mindfulness. Are you familiar with those terms? I've, yeah, I've heard you speak about it. Um, I, I've never heard it put in that way with that language, but yeah. But please, yeah. No, go, go, like, could you share a bit more? Yeah, for sure. So I think in the West, we've, in recent years, and it's important to recognize that it is only recent. Like the first Buddhists really got to North America only like 60 or I guess like 70, 80 years ago. Like it's not that long. They've been very content to hang out mostly in the East and uh, yeah, not bug anyone. So recently in our culture in North America and in uh, like colonial descendants, we've adopted this notion of mindfulness. And I don't know about everyone listening, but for myself, when I first heard about mindfulness, I thought it was lighting incense and sitting down in stretchy pants on a comfy cushion and trying to breathe and just relax and just relax and melt and maybe play some like whale song in the background. And I think that's what mindfulness has come to mean for the average, like I'll say American or Westerner here. Where unfortunately that is not, that is like this, the most superficial or face value version of mindfulness. Mindfulness actually means to attend to whatever is a coming, whatever is arising, regardless of if it's relaxation or stress, anger, arousal, the, the desire for violence. Maybe it's the explicit or like the very engaged participation with a sensual pleasure. You can be mindful of all those things. So to be mindful is a verb. But there's a, another important part that's missing. Because before you can witness a sensation, you must be aware that there is a sensation. And I wish somebody had told me this for years while I was meditating because <laughs> I was sitting there like trying to figure it out and I never knew if I was doing it right and I didn't get it. And at some point, someone was like, oh, by the way, you can practice noticing things. You can practice employing what's called one name for it. It's a translation, but it's bare attention. Also, somewhat ironically, given what we've talked about, it can also be called naked awareness or simple awareness or sorry, naked attention or bare attention. So 
What is bear attention? Bear attention is the ability to detect changes in what you feel. And by you, I mean your mind, your brain, your heart, your physical body, your toes, your stomach, your spine. Maybe it's something just around your body. Maybe it feels like you have a you sense sensory experience of a couple of feet in either way. Maybe it's auditory. Maybe it's what it sounds like to hear things coming from a distance. Bear attention is noticing, identifying when a sensation is arising anywhere in your being. I think of it like a radar, a multidimensional radar. <laughs> And one, wow, we can pay attention to like the world and I get to operate this radar. What a great toy. This is awesome. Mm. <laughs> it's so cool. And so you can practice that. That's the, the, one of the parts of meditation is to practice noticing, ah, a sensation is arising. And then maybe you triangulate, oh, and it's in my left thigh. And so Bear attention is the first step and it precedes the second step of meditation, which is of mindfulness. And mindfulness is directing the spotlight of your awareness to that sensation. So you've got a ping or a blip on your radar. You've figured out where it is and now you're zooming in or you're directing more uh, attention to look closer at it. It's not just a blip anymore. It's something that you're inspecting or analyzing or at least witnessing. And so in this way, if you, if you want to practice this kind of meditation, it's not the only kind of meditation, but it's one kind. I think generally this is referred to as Vipassana or I, for me, it comes from the Theravada Buddhist tradition and it's called insight meditation. There's many different names. The names don't matter, but if you want to have a hyperlink to click and go down, if you want to practice this kind of meditation and just simply noticing, ah, I'm feeling a thing and that thing is over there. What? And then the next step, what is it like to feel this thing? Am I excited? Do I resist it? Does it feel warm? Does it have a texture? Is there a sound? Mm. <laughs> Those two things for me are like endless in their possibilities of discovery and connection. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just kind of feeling into what that may, that process may look like kind of leading into a psychedelic experience. And even afterwards, the idea of making space for that and maybe some experiences that you've had within the journey itself, um, I guess uh, may have more of a chance to blossom or to filter through into your life because you're providing the space for them to uh, marinate um, mm -hmm. through, you know, I mean, one thing is what you've mentioned, but there's also like con contemplation around certain areas um, mm -hmm. of what you've gone through. So yeah, I'm just kind of, yeah, I guess I'm kind of wondering um, and I appreciate you sharing that and kind of giving that kind of clear distinction and it is such a beautiful kind of 
insights that come across, it does open things up quite a lot because then you can kind of go back to the cushion and, and back to life in a, in, a, in a way where you've got a little bit more to play with. And even like you said, the possibilities are quite endless. Like think about that in nature or think about that naked, naked in nature. Oh wow. Now it just goes, you know, like, there's, there's a create, creative element to what you could do with that space. What if you notice, oh, this is so often. Okay. I'm <laughs> so excited. When I first <laughs> took psychedelics and experienced altered like sensory inputs, hmm. I remember being like, oh shit, those are the hallucinations that everyone warned me about. I can't focus on those too much or else I'm going to lose my mind. And mm. I threw down the shutters and I closed myself off to them. And it's been a process of many years of trying to get to a place where when I notice the simple attention, the naked awareness, when I notice that I don't immediately follow that up with a pattern of behavior that I've scripted at a young age that needs to happen in order to stay safe but instead to be what is it to ask myself what would it be like to simply witness this yeah i think about that when i get an itch or, of some sort yeah exactly you can do it in the most <laughs> mundane of circumstances yeah 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 so uh, yeah so i'm still kind of curious about what you do after an experience and if there's anything built yeah, up so around that area like that you've you know like you said it's still ongoing mm -hmm. and it's been informed by these um the the depth of these kind of i'm guessing in indigenous kind of peoples of different lands and your experiences with um these underground um groups mm -hmm. that have derived their uh, knowledge and their kind of ways um from their own you know experiences in those spaces but i'm wondering what your individual and unique process has evolved into at this at this moment and if there is some mm -hmm. some sense of um patterning or protocol that you do um you know regularly kind of um because mm -hmm. i know I, I feel like there's a there's a there's a uh, it, i think of the word clay but there's like a malleability um directly after an experience where there's actually quite i've noticed an opportunity to um yeah um reshape something or play yeah. with something that um mm -hmm. can often be overlooked and um it, it happens you know all the time either consciously mm -hmm. or unconsciously but especially in those potent moments directly after so i'm wondering yeah maybe more direct of the question would be is there anything in those specific areas that you that yeah. you that you do hmm. That question's really alive in me lately. It's something I actually haven't done psychedelics for, um, I don't know, a couple of months at least now, um, which is somewhat unusual for me. I think I use them like every three or four months, typically, like historically. Um, Do you align that with the changing of the seasons or with any kind of, I, or is it just a feeling thing? I, I really do uh, pay attention to the change of the seasons. That's something I'm actually like trying to study a lot more and trying to tune into um, the medicine wheel or the seasonal calendar, as I think my ancestors may have referred to it. Um, I don't, I'm not so strict so much on when though. Um, there are definitely some times of year where it seems uh, to make more sense. And so they do follow a rhythm, um, but it's really just intuition based. Um, I just want to give gratitude and thanks to, uh, some of the people who have, and cultures who have helped me learn these things. Um, everyone from 
the Tsleil-Waututh and the Squamish peoples of uh, what's now called North Vancouver. I'm really grateful for time spent with their elders where they taught me about steadiness and patience and of hard work and diligence and to be in our process and to not rush it and to not try and step out of it if it feels intense. I'm also grateful for Marikames who um, from Mexico who work with peyote and for the wisdom that they've carried and shared with me. And I'm also grateful for my ancestors who I feel like in different moments have showed up and have offered their guidance and their insights and their perspectives to help me understand which may, what may feel good for me. And so I think the thing that most jumps out are, we can roughly call it the beginning, middle, and end. And so the middle is what we've been talking about of noticing what's coming up with as much like relaxed strength as possible. When I was taught to meditate, there's a specific pose where you sit and it's one where your eyes are on the ground or like a couple of feet in front of you, but your eyes are open and your body is strong. It's not like a, you're not slouched over. Your muscles are engaged. It's a relaxed strength. And so I try and cultivate that during those experiences and try and be like alert and like working and being like, what is this like? I'm participating. It's not happening to me. Mm-hmm. I'm not controlling it, but I am participating in it. Okay. So that's during in the beginning. The, the biggest thing is um, intention setting and just really trying to ground it, like establish why am I doing this? Do I have any secret fears or desires? Because uh, at least in my experience, if I'm not aware of them, they're going to come up <laughs> and I don't necessarily want to be blindsided by them. So Man, I used to be so against things like prayer and um, all this this stuff that I thought was super voodoo and like uh, wishy-washy. And I realized that like prayer can be as simple as like asking yourself, like, what are you hoping for? And just saying, like, just feeling into like, oh, I would really love, really love to learn more about what it means to be connected to my family. And I have this prayer that I may, in whatever way is right, experience that. So having a sense of like, oh, what are the possibilities? And humbly, humbly approaching it with a sense of curiosity and excitement. I think that's, um, or maybe it's also a, an honest appreciation of like, there's this part of me that's really heavy. There's a part of me that that's, feels broken and sore. And I just really want help. I think spending time to excavate, like to pull away some of the debris or some of the normalcy and to really figure out like, where are the veins of myself that um, want to be connected with or want to be uh, enriched or yeah, brought to the surface. So set an intention, be active during the ceremony and participate with gentle, relaxed strength. And then to finish, 
Oh man, I think this is the part that I'm still trying to figure out. <laughs> I think integration is key. And I find that more and more that from as I mature, and I think for a long time, I was like this lone wolf sort of running around like army of one person. And I recently got married. I am part of a community. I have active relationships that of people who rely on me. I have clients, I have all these relationships and it feels like, oh yeah, I'm not just me anymore. I am part of a network. I am part of a family of a community. And in that I've, it's really become clear to me the last couple of times I've done um, psychedelics that the integration necessarily involves those people. And I can no longer be like, okay, I'm just going to go in there. I'm just going to do my thing. I'm going to come out. I'm going to take whatever time I need and then like, re-enter society. It's like, no, like you identified, there's this, I'm going to be changed. I'm going to be radically different. I'm going to become plastic. And we know from neuroscience, like your brain physically changes. Like plasticity, when someone consumes something, a powerful substance like psilocybin or ayahuasca or uh, bufo or any of these things, it introduces neuroplasticity where habits can change, personality traits shift. And so I think for my- Briefly um, touch on um, the neuroscience of that a little bit further, just because I know that you've studied that at uni. So I'm kind of curious if just a couple more kind of- um, uh, jargonish, complicated, <laughs> interesting kind of words would be nice. I don't know around that space. Yeah, for sure. I can avoid the jargon, but I can say this pretty succinctly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, two things. One is like one. So we got to define what brain neuroplasticity is. For a long time, people thought um, when you had experiences, they built up in your body and they locked and they became fixed. So there was this debate for many thousands of years about how fixed people were, but generally people used to think you were pretty fixed. You can't teach an old dog, new tricks. You can only learn a language when you're a kid, all this stuff. That's all wrong. That's all. It's actually like none of that's true. There definitely are advantages to learning things when you're young, but not nearly to the degree that people think. And if you want to learn more about that, um, you can find there's like, I forget what the title of it is. It might be, this is your brain on music. There was a professor who, who was in their like fifties or sixties who had never played an instrument. And they took a year off a sabbatical from university uh, to try and learn how to play guitar to see if they could make their brain plastic and to learn this new thing. And then they compared that to the research they did in their lab with other people learning skills across different age groups. And lo and behold, everyone has about the same level of neuroplasticity. Some people are more than others, but general, it has general amounts of variance amongst the population. There are, especially for things like language acquisition, there are what we call critical window periods where for youth, like for babies, if you're exposed to different sounds, um, the smallest units of language are called morphemes and phonemes. Your brain will take in all those data points and pull out meaning Mm. based on the syntax and the semantics and the grammar. So That is to say that um, there are periods of time where certain kinds of learning are more um, possible, but the 
I think the the general folk understanding of this is completely wrong. You you can definitely um, introduce neuroplasticity or change yourself um, really substantially all throughout your life. So I hope for all of you hearing this, that if you have any set ideas of, oh, well, I'm too far along. I can't learn how to be a photographer. I can't become a painter. I can't learn a new language. I'm already in my forties. Like, eh. <laughs> like, sorry, that excuse is no longer valid. <laughs> Unless you want it to be, then use it all you want. <laughs> um, so how do psychedelics interplay with um, neuroplasticity? Well, really simply, psychedelics are commonly um, prompts of, like ingesting a psychedelic in prompts a ton of stress. And there's a bunch of neurotransmitters and stuff that, but I'm just going to say stress. And stress, one of the things it does is signal to your body, like in, a, in this moment, just think about like, if you saw someone with a gun over there, can you imagine that stress that you would feel? And what would immediately happen after that, that trigger or that, yeah. What would you, what do you think you might do? It's fight or flight. Yeah. So you'd like come online and you'd be primed for action. Yeah. So stress is a really great way of being like, pay attention. You need to do something. Stress actually signals to our brain and to our body. Cause by the way, we have neurons in our body, like in our heart and in our stomach. And it signals, Hey, like, yo, be alert. You're going to have to do something right now. And so in that place of activation is the potential to either default to the patterns that are known. And so maybe that's, Oh shit, there's a threat of violence. I'm going to run away or I'm going to go fight them. But also there's like anything you do in those States will be more flexible and have more energy behind them and be more likely to be remembered especially actions, physical actions, because there's stress going on. Hmm. Another, so that's, that's a gross oversimplification. That's just any stress will make you like come on alert. And it just so happens that psychedelics do that. But the magic of psychedelics and the reason why something like psilocybin is going to be more therapeutic or psycho-spiritually like enriching than something like having someone point a gun at you is that there's a bunch of different like chemical constituent elements that reroute brain activity in such a way that your brain is forced to re-examine fixed beliefs or patterns of relating or thinking. So the way I like to think about this is if we, we have all these different parts of our brain that are more or less specialized and they each like to do things in certain ways. And generally, as you go through life, your brain's doing a really good job of figuring out how can I throw this baseball or write this article or make food in a way that accomplishes my goals reliably, avoids danger, and then also isn't super inefficient. And once it figures some of those patterns out, especially as you're getting older, it's like, okay, bank that recipe, mm -hmm. <laughs> save that pa neural pattern of activity. Cause it works. We don't need to reinvent it. Like learn it. 
And so when you do, when somebody consumes something like psilocybin, magic mushrooms, there gets to be these like roadblocks put in on the highways of their brain. And it's not just, it's not like the brain shuts off so much as it's just like, oh, you can't, you can no longer go straight from A to B. You're being rerouted. And in that process, the brain's like, oh, okay, that's no biggie. That happens all the time. This is a little bit more than usual, but we can do it. And so it figures out an alternate route. This is actually commonly what we can attribute to this hallucinations or the sensory, like the thing that most people are familiar with about psychedelics or hallucinogens is because it's not say just for your vision. It's not just going from point A to point B. It goes a different way. And this, those suburbs that it goes through, like driving somewhere, a different route to get to work, those suburbs are like slightly different. So the main message might get through, you might still be able to see, but there's going to be all this extra information that filters in and affects your personal experience. And it's like, oh, I, I thought I was just going to see the same highway that I'm familiar with, but there's all this like weird color stuff going on. And so synesthesia is the phenomenon of uh, sensory inputs being uh, overlapped. And so synesthesia is where you taste a color or you smell a sound. By the way, there are actually a number of people who are born this way um, and just have this all the time to various degrees. And it's a wild area to research if you're keen. I have a really good friend who's a very talented um, jazz musician and he sees uh, every note he plays. He sees color uh, like float through the sky and he's never done psychedelics partly because he's like, I already see so much, man. <laughs> so for neuroplasticity and this, this ability to be the, not the fixed rigid wall, but the mold, moldable clay, part of it's because there's all this novelty and you've made things change already. You've rerouted the traffic. And so it's going to, it's like, oh, I th always thought from A to B, I could just take this main highway. But it turns out when I go through this suburb, there's so many beautiful things to see. And in that way, you can start to explore new patterns of neural activity or new choices or behaviors or physical motions. Maybe you're like, I was only breathing in my, like, in my throat. What if I breathe into my belly? Whoa. Okay. Whoa. I'm going to try and remember this later. <laughs> yeah. I, so what comes up for me, and I, I am cognizant of time. I was wondering, I'm not sure how much more you have, um, but I, I was kind of um, in and around this idea of what you're sharing. Seems like that breeds quite a lot of potentiality with the shaping of, you know, our trajectory in life and um, the lessons that we learn. And almost like you mentioned earlier, like an acceleration of sorts, um, increased experiences that are quite profound and meaningful leading to new discoveries and um, realizations and um, ultimately um, it sometimes can be the can be the kind of um, the way of things that uh, from coming out of an experience you feel like there's a lot more um, areas that you want to work on or explore mm -hmm. or um, mm -hmm. deepen or look into or sit with or you know mm -hmm. whatever that might that might look like and 
there's this link that comes up for me. It's been an active area of exploration. And I'm curious to know, because you said this was kind of this integration state was still ongoing and ongoing exploration for you when you were looking at the relational space and how, um, yeah, how to kind of dance into that space and the realization that it's not just you going off and then re-entering. It's all the time, almost like the idea of even um, bridging your practice in Buddhism with life rather than it being separate on the cushion and, um, you know, from your day to day. But mm-hmm. I guess the idea comes up with this idea of um, and mythology comes to mind. And it's an area I've been looking into this. It's almost like, um, are you familiar with the, the tale of Faust? And this idea of almost like being careful with this huge amount of power and yeah. the dangers that come along with that. It's, it's not as it, it may not just kind of come. Yeah. You know, these gifts don't usually come without um, another, another side. So I was yeah. wondering what comes to you and what you've, have you looked at that aspect of things? For sure. Yeah. There's, so I've got about another 15 minutes Perfect. and there's two parts, um, two parts of this that jump out at me. I, I think you're wise to identify that there are risks here. And that's something that in proselytizing the benefits of psychedelics, it can be easy to gloss over, but there are, there are risks. They are real and they are tangible and they are significant. Some people don't come back from missteps on this path. And I consider myself someone who can use them or has used them, I should say, um, with intentionality and support. And it's been fairly safe. And even then there are, there have been significant burns or points of injury resulting from a lack of awareness of how to integrate specifically the integration. And so I can say historically where I'm coming from the context. And I think that will give more information and then I can say where I'm at today with it. I'd love to hear your thoughts too. Hmm. So for context, I think throughout my life, this radical invitation for plasticity has felt like a limitless gift and just pure good oh my gosh, I can change. Wow. That's wonderful. And we know from the research on this of people on longitudinal studies of folks who have done psychedelics, that generally folks who've done psychedelics are happier than people who haven't. And so I, for a long time thought we, there's this personality test and there's this measurement of openness, which is highly correlated with life satisfaction and relationships and happiness and people who do psychedelics score better after they do psychedelics the day after the month after a year after five years after compared to when they haven't done psychedelics so i was like oh it's like a vitamin it's only good (laughs) and then i noticed after the first summer where i started to do acid i did acid a number of times maybe six times in four four months which i consider to be uh, a lot. And some of my best friends, people I really admired and respected and trusted, um, had almost like an intervention for me where they sat me down and they're like, Hey, Blake, just want to let you know, we're really concerned about you. We really think the acids changed you. And I had this, uh, Jay-Z line come to mind, which is, do you think I worked this hard to stay the same? And I was like, Oh yeah, it did change me. That's why I did it. (laughs) 
And at the time I was, I think I was scared of their sincerity or the possibility that they were seeing elements of me changing that weren't pleasant. And I think a wiser person in that moment would have done more to listen and to understand. And I really tried, I really tried to um, do what I've heard for feedback, which is really helpful, which is not to like defend or like seek to explain yourself, but to just ask questions and to receive the gift that someone is offering as so long as you trust them and you feel safe. But I just couldn't understand. I didn't get, they're like, you're just, I just didn't understand what they were seeing. And it wasn't until recently, like many years later, five or six years later, at least where my now wife said similar things after I would return from ceremony and three times in a row, I returned from ceremony one, even with them, with her. And there was moments of tension or of conflict in the days, usually like the immediate, like one to five days following where I was in this state of connection and transcendence and like awareness of the, the beautiful reality that I participate in. And yet my social skills were lacking or I was dropping the ball or I was thinking I had these grand insights that deserved immediate attention and that, no, I see clearly, and this is true and we have to do this. And in those spaces, the first time, the second time, and the third time, I caused harm. Well, well-intentioned action, motivated from what felt like love and connection and joy. But in hindsight, I think was, like I've spent a lot of time just really trying to learn from what others have said and also to study and to listen and to reflect on what I feel. And what I've come to realize in the past couple of months is, there was a big ball or bundle of energy inside of me and it was looking for a way out. And I think I lacked the clarity or the level of discernment to identify what the best way to spend that energy was. And so when I smelt an opportunity, I wasn't actually so like careful to check if this is the thing that needs to be like throw my spirit and myself at. I was just grateful for the, like, I am alive and I have vigor. And I brought, I think in some cases, too much, too much to it. Too many of my hopes, too many of my fears. I just indiscriminately uh, directed or sprayed them thinking that I was somehow like, I don't know, like, not enlightened. I've never thought that, but connected to a sense of knowing that was infallible. Mm-hmm. I think I lost humility in those moments. And so what I've really been trying to listen, and honestly, this, a lot of this comes from indigenous uh, teachings from North, like from the regions I grew up is to communicate to the people I'm going to be interacting with what I'm going through so that they're informed And then also to budget time on the back end of these traditions where I'm not thrust back into normalcy or responsibility and to really like four or five days to a week, like 
maybe even like if I could like spend time in a cabin or spend time like doing things that are very gentle and not like rushing back into relationships or into responsibilities. And right. we just to finish, we, yes. we know, yeah, Go for it. we know that, um, the neural plasticity from things like psilocybin and ayahuasca, uh, it, it, um, eases off or it decreases, um, like linearly. So on the first day after you're fairly plastic and the second day after you're most, you're still pretty plastic and it goes down day by day by day. So as far as I understand from the neuroscience, um, generally somewhere around a week, it's like way lower. It's at like a third of what it was in the middle or just coming out of the experience. And then after, um, at that point, it's very manageable for most folks and you can still change your behaviors or like install new habits with more ease and flexibility, but you're not in that place of like, whoa, whoa, everything's changing. Everything can be flexible. Yeah. What I'm hearing and what I'm feeling into as well in my own explorations is this combination of preparation, but also what you mentioned earlier is kind of uh, almost like the bare attention and the mindfulness together with whatever's emerging in those moments, you know, mixed in with that preparatory kind of plan of some sort that's, that's also malleable. I think about it like you're going on a trip and you kind of structure most of the trip, but when you're there, you know, you still allow yeah. the wind to blow you in different directions and zig and zag. Yeah. yeah. It's a similar kind of thing. And I think that might be um, a beautiful message to take away, but I'm also just filled with this sense of gratitude and, and almost like um, an appreciation for how naked you've been in this conversation and mm. how much you've opened up and shared from personal experience. And also um, I feel like your way of articulating your thoughts and experiences and ideas is is really beautiful and really clear and simple so i just wanted to throw that out there and just say this is it's it's been a wonderful experience to just kind of sit and and be within the space that you've created through that openness and simplicity mm. yeah thank you so much michael to be completely frank those are things that i try really hard to like i choose to be that way and yes. I think a lot of the things that we talk about um, are my attempts, my sincere attempts to try and cultivate that way of being. Um, so I really appreciate and I'm honored that you uh, witnessed it. And thank you so much for being interested and um, putting the work in to initiate this conversation. And it's been absolutely delightful, both in the conversation and prior to see also the sincerity and the warmth and the intelligence in the way that you have communicated so thank you very much yeah awesome <laughs> i just so i, I probably I could probably stop the recording there and um uh, you know if there's unless you wanted to say a few things about places we would like people to check out um from your own you know work i can definitely add that in if you wanted to share a few things mm -hmm. um but i kind of i do feel like i'd love to have another chat at some point if you're open to the idea um, and maybe go a little bit deeper um, and, you know, no, no expectations. And if, if you don't feel like it, or if yeah, there's no time, that's totally fine. But seeing kind of time as an open canvas, you know, and 
any distance in the future as being a possibility mm. um, for that to happen. Um, I'd love to yeah, engage in the space again and see. There's so many things I guess have left just because of time constraints that I, that I would have liked to kind of look into. But um, yeah, I just want to throw that out there. So yeah. Yeah, I appreciate it. And yeah, I'd, I'd be open to it as well. Cool. Cool. Um, I, I don't have any plugs to to put in. I think I would mention that if folks really urgently have a desire or interest in contacting me, probably the best place is on Instagram. Um, I'm not super active on social media at the moment. I'm kind of in monk mode, working on some projects, um, trying to build courses and find ways of amplifying uh, the messages I come in contact with and to establish a platform that is sovereign and um, where I can interact with folks uh, without the potential of being knocked off due to someone else's decision-making. Just a little note that actually happened to me already with Instagram. I had a whole career shooting nude photos and the, they cut me off and they closed my account. Um, so at this point, I'm not so interested in continuing to invest in a platform like that but it is probably my most public facing and accessible place for folks to uh, find me that or on Facebook, if they're so inclined. Um, yeah. And I'm happy to have conversations like this. Awesome. I, really, I honestly, I really value and appreciate um, the opportunity to exchange ideas and to learn from um, both looking at these beautiful uh, constructs. So sending a loving breeze of gratitude in your direction thank you so much for sharing space with us here and now and if you want some more information about our guest you can head over to todaydreamer.com and check it check out the episode section on the page um, also if you're someone that's interested in deepening your practice of presence if you want to work together with someone to structure a spiritual practice whether it's an existing one or a new one and if you're looking to build consistency and define your ambition and recalibrate your trajectory in a way that's more in line with wholeness and in a way that contributes and participates more fully in the emergent world story and its blossoming then feel free to get in touch because i'm taking on a small handful of one-on-one -on -one clients spiritual friends um, and I'd love to speak to you. If you did enjoy this episode and you felt like you got something out of it, feel free to share it with your community. And if you feel like there's anyone in particular that could benefit from the space shared today, uh, I would really appreciate if you'd pass it on to them. And I'm sure they would too. And yeah, uh, I'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you again, my friend, and be well.